Open your Bibles to Romans 10, if you will. What, what a great way to spend the morning leading up to the preaching, doing two wonderful things, focusing our attention on Christ and praying. It's the very thing that our Lord w was trying to get the disciples to do just as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and heading to the cross. He was getting them to focus on him and his purpose and why he was here and why he came and he was wanting them as you remember to pray we've been studying for the last five weeks that the reason that God rejected Israel and why she didn't believe was because of ignorance Ignorance of spiritual things. She didn't understand the gospel. Listen to how the Apostle John put it in 1 John 5.20. Listen to this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, Jesus Christ. You hear what he says there? In other words, understanding is crucial to the gospel. You have to have understanding. You can't just say, well, I just believe and not have the understanding. If you say that you believe, but you don't have the understanding, then you really don't believe. The understanding has to be there. But notice from 1 John 5.20, understanding is something that has to be given to you. That's how John explains salvation. Salvation is divine understanding given to you by divine means. This is not an exercise of academia. This is not an exercise of logic. This is not an exercise of rationality and reasoning and deduction and trying to figure things out. This is not an exercise of, you know, people today that, that try to, you know, psychologically figure people out and figure things out and kind of look there and, and you see things and you say, okay, I think I've got life figured out. This is not that. This is, if the Lord doesn't Open the eye, open the eye of the heart, and there's no salvation. You can't save yourself, in other words. That's what John was saying there in 1 John 5.20. Jesus has to give you an understanding of the gospel. Can you understand why it's so critical for you to pray? This is why Peter says... Repent and pray that the Lord would give you, would bring you to that place. That He would show mercy to you. Not because He's unwilling, but because you would hold on to yourself so tightly and not really turn to Him. See? 
And you can't get that understanding by accumulating more information, more Bible, more facts. You can't do that. Now don't misunderstand me. Yes, you have to have the right facts. And so it's critical that we read our Bibles. It's critical that we hear the preaching. It's critical that we learn from study. But it's more than that. God has to open your eyes to see two things. And that is God's holiness and your sinfulness. And that's what we've been studying lately, haven't we? And then you have to see Christ as the only answer. And if you don't see those, those two things, you won't see your need for a Savior. We're studying Romans 10. And it's all about Israel. It's been all about Israel. Chapter 9 was all about Israel. Chapter 10 is all about Israel. Chapter 11 is all about Israel. Israel is the critical piece to the gospel. You say, really? I don't remember sharing a gospel message that had anything to do with Israel. Well, it's critical because God brought the gospel through Israel. And for her to reject the gospel... In fact, read several portions of Deuteronomy and you'll see the Lord saying there's going to come a time, Israel, in your history where you will be a byword to people around you. People will say bad things and say, ha, huh, about the God of Israel because of your testimony. And so really what Paul's doing is defending the gospel here. Chapter 10 is all about Israel. Chapter 9 was about Israel's unbelief from the side of how it fit with God's plan. We saw that. We studied that. 10 is all about Israel's ignorance from the side of how it worked with her lack of faith. Okay? So that we can't just say, well, pff, if, you don't, if you're not elect, I mean, what hope do you have? It's not that at all. What he's trying to show you is there are two sides to this deal and they both harmonize in ways that you and I can't figure out. On the one hand, yes, God does elect. Yes, those people that are saved are saved because God has had chosen them before the foundation of the world to be saved. He had to do that. Otherwise, nobody would be saved. And yet chapter 10 says, and yet at the same time, God holds all responsible to believe. And so therefore, Israel's unbelief comes under condemnation because she willfully refused to believe. She didn't exercise faith. She didn't believe. Why didn't Israel, why didn't all of uh, Israel believe when God's gospel came to her? Two answers to that. Chapter 9, because God didn't choose Oliver, just a remnant. But chapter 10, because she willfully chose to be ignorant. We're looking at that side of things. Okay? And I believe what's really important here for you to get is this. Because oftentimes, I think we get paralyzed in our evangelism. And we think to ourselves, oh, well, if God is sovereign and He alone can save me, really, what can I actually tell that person? What do I really have to say to that person? Because God, after all, is the one that's got to open the heart. So therefore, I mean, I guess I just shrug the shoulders and really don't do much in this whole deal anyway. No, chapter 10. You know what you do? You call them to believe. And you impress that upon them, just like Paul is doing here in chapter 10. 
chapter 10, she didn't believe she's because she, was willfully, she willfully chose to be ignorant. Now, not all of Israel. Ignorant. You know, we usually think of a person who just doesn't know as being somebody ignorant. Not knowing. And we, we usually think of, when we think of the, the idea of ignorance, and this is, I think, why it's maybe a little bit of a problem for you to understand Romans 10, but we usually think, when we think of ignorance, as somebody, for example, who didn't have a knowledge of the rules when they broke it, right? When you think of ignorance, you think, well, they just didn't know. You know, you, you go to a foreign country, and you drive on the right side of the road, when you're really supposed to drive on the left side, right? So you used to drive on the right side and the little, you know, the cop pulls you over and he says, you know, you're, you're getting a ticket. And you say, well, why? So you're driving on the wrong side of the road. And you think, oh, okay, well, my country, we, you know, I, I just didn't know that. See? Well, your ignorance isn't going to take the ticket away. You still get the ticket, right? You say, well, I just didn't know. Ignorance. But you feel a little bit better about it, at least, right? Or... Maybe you don't know the, the, you know, kilometers is not the same thing as miles. And you, you go, you know, wow, this is great, you know. In this country, you get to go 120 miles an hour. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you see that little, I remember driving up to Canada and thinking that thing. Wow, this is, I love Canada, you know. And then, you know, you come back to reality. You realize on your odometer deal there, you got the, you know, the blue underneath the white, you know, where it shows you kilometers. We usually think about that when we hear ignorance. And you can see why Paul's taking his time to explain this because he's saying that Israel's ignorant and he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that, well, you just didn't know. No, he's saying you did know and you're still ignorant. And I have to ask this here. So I'm going to grab myself, I brought myself a glass of water here. I learned from last week <laughs> that I was going to choke I have to ask this. How can Israel not know? I, I mean, you're talking about... Paul's taking his time to explain this. I mean, they of all people had so much knowledge. I mean, how could they not know? You ever, you ever feel that way with your children? You, you feel like you've told them 13 times? And they say to you, I said no. You think to yourself, how? How? I mean... I felt like a parrot for the last, you know, three weeks. And you don't know. Imagine how Paul is feeling right now going, Israel, you, you, you just, you have 2,000 years of history. And you don't know. They could never say we just didn't know. But look at verse 2. They have a zeal for God. Yes, there's passion. <laughs> they're pro-God. In other words, they are, they are pro-God. They would be on the streets with the pickets. I mean, they're all anti-abortion. They're, they're pro-God. It's all, yay God. That's Israel. But he says, notice, emotion's not the issue. Look at it. But not in accordance with knowledge. Knowledge is, isn't it? Knowledge is the issue. And not the amount of knowledge He's not talking, about, not talking about accumulating facts and information. He's talking about the kind of knowledge, spiritual knowledge. Like 2 Timothy 3, 7. 
like those always learning and never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's them. And so they're, you know, spitting it out. Now they know. So what Paul's doing is defending the gospel. They didn't believe it. And so because they have this rich history, you have to ask yourself, I mean, is it a wrong gospel? I mean, after all, here are the purveyors, supposedly the purveyors of truth for so long. Shouldn't they, of all people, know what's a right message and what's a wrong message? So is it a wrong gospel or is Israel wrong? And then you have to come to this place. What, what happened to Israel? Having worked through Israel for almost 2,000 years, and now you see God setting her aside. What happened? Well, we gave you the chapter 9 explanation, but chapter 10 is also part of the explanation. Verse 1, look at what Paul says. I'm praying for them, he says, to be saved. What's that tell you? Then they're not saved, right? They need salvation. What's that tell you? Information doesn't save you. I remember before I was a, just before I was a Christian, and the Lord really used this to me, I started accumulating information like crazy. I saw my brother become a Christian, and I thought, you know, and I have a Bible, and I thought, well, the thing that I need to do then is read this thing and get as much information and be the best that I can be. And I didn't know, I didn't realize that I was a, that I was sinful, that it was a heart issue, that it was a heart problem, that I had a separation from God, and I didn't know Him. They're not saved. Verse 2, Paul says, I can recognize a person who has a passion for God, but not a God-given passion, not a right passion, not a God-glorifying desire for God and His glory, right? How? Verse 3, for not knowing. Because it's ignorant. It doesn't have the kind of knowledge that leads to salvation. What's that? Well, he's breaking it down for us in six ways, and that's what we're seeing here in Romans 10. Here's what they're ignorant of. First of all, righteousness. That is, God's righteousness. And even their own righteousness, or their lack of. They didn't really get what God is like. That was the point of the first three verses. They lowered God's standard. They lowered His standard for holiness. And it's important, I think, to... To say holiness, because I think oftentimes we hear obedience, and we think of obedience separate from holiness. Obedience is not meant to be separated from holiness. Obedience is the outward manifestation of holiness. And if it isn't, then it's an improper obedience. Holiness is that internal purity that drives true and good obedience. so they were ignorant of that. They lowered his standard for holiness and they raised the bar of their own righteousness. And so they, they didn't know how righteous God was, really, is what he was saying there in those first three verses. They brought God down low and raised themselves up high. They didn't get James 2.10. Remember that verse? Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point, he has become what? Guilty of all. In other words, all it takes is one sin to damn the soul forever. One. 
And you know the bad part about that? You, you committed it before you were even born. <laughs> Imagine that. You, you came out having struck out, right? I mean, you didn't have a chance. A fighter's chance, right? You're done. Right at the very beginning. But in order to really confirm that you really are a sinner, that's what he says. Look, just take a look, examine your life. Have you seen one sin? Well, then you're done. Is there just one? Then right over your resume, finished. Because that's you. God's holiness, His righteousness is absolute. His standard is absolute. And it's a standard that's based on who He is. That's what we learned. They were, as one pastor put it, autosoteric. Same. Explain that one to me. <laughs> well, the word auto means self, and soteric means saving. They were self-saving. That was their theology, was self-saving. That was their belief system. And you know, beloved, that's where the whole world is today. Many today have that same thinking. I can save myself. Remember, I was thinking about this, meditating on this this last week. Remember what they said to Jesus when he was on the cross? You saved others and you can't save what? Yourself. They completely missed and under, had a missed understanding of salvation. Because why could they say that? Because that's how, what, that's how they were living their lives. Save yourself. I mean, we're all saving ourselves. Why can't you do that for you? I have a self-saving system, is what they were saying. That's why, that's my pursuit. That's my quest, they were saying. The pursuit of my happiness is a self-saving pursuit. Making myself happy. This is the reason why today people can get a divorce and rationalize it by saying, but I was pursuing my happiness. After all, you wouldn't want me to be in this and be unhappy, would you? So what does happiness have anything to do with it? It's not about happiness, it's about holiness. And by the way, I see it that way, and yet fully understanding that true happiness is inherent in holiness. In other words, the world is pursuing false happiness because it doesn't pursue the holiness that is only found in Christ. Now that kind of thinking might even admit that there's a God but it basically says this. Yeah, I'm okay with him. He'll accept me. I'm a decent guy. I mean, deep in my heart, I'm sincere. And so what you get out of all that is that God is less holy. They are more holy. And what they refuse to see has how absolute God's law is, how binding it is, how narrow it is, how, you know, unrelenting it is. They refuse to see that. And I think that was the thing that drove Martin Luther just almost mad and crazy with such guilt is because he finally realized that God's righteousness and His holiness and His wrath is just unrelenting. 
And so that every one of his sins became, felt like a stake to the heart. Being nailed in there. And so they won't let themselves be poor in spirit. They're self-saving. Ezra wasn't like that. Remember Ezra and Ezra 9? The people sinned. Ezra as their leader, this is what he said. This is how he prayed. O Lord God of Israel, Ezra 9.15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we have been left in escape remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For no one can stand before you because of this. In other words, what brought Ezra to feel the weight of the nation's guilt and sin? What was it? God's righteousness. That's what he says. The very righteousness of God, meditating on his righteousness. Israel says, we have no standing before you, O God. Israel says, we're okay, we're fine, we see. Ezra says, we're not fine. We don't see. We need, we're, we're, we're really in a bad place because of your righteousness, O Lord. And we can be saved because of your righteousness, see. In other words, we're condemned because of it, because we don't measure up to it. And yet it's the very thing that we can be saved by. So that's the first thing Israel was ignorant of. God's righteousness, God's holiness. Now listen, beloved. That comes first, doesn't it? Always. Always. Always start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, there was a holy God. A holy God who created. A holy God who did what he did. A holy God who had a plan. A holy God who was sovereign. A holy God who didn't just make things up and guess and say, well, let's see if we can figure how things would go. Oh, not a, a holy God who wasn't saying, well, I'll, I'll start this deal and we'll see what happens and then I'll respond to kind of how creatures are. And so you start with God. But watch what comes second. They were not only ignorant of God, number two, they're they, they, they ignorant in their understanding of Christ. In their understanding of Christ. Verse four. Now what's the tide, what's the tide of verse three? Here they are trying to set up their own righteousness. Look at verse three, how it ends. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now watch this. They did not subject... What, what's that? What's that righteousness? Watch this. This is so neat to keep things in the context. The righteousness of God at the end of verse 3 that Paul is talking about is connected to the very first word in verse 4. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ. What's the righteousness that they did not subject themselves to? The righteousness that belongs to whom? Christ. In fact, you could even include that word is, for Christ is all of who he is. You say, are you sure? Yeah. Jesus Christ is the very righteousness. Those two words, for Christ, tell us he's the very righteousness of God that they didn't surrender to. In other words, they went wrong about Jesus. Now look back at chapter 9 here. 
He's kind of already told us this. Verse 31. Israel pursued a law of righteousness. It didn't arrive at it. What's that? Well, they had this pursuit, the, this pursuit of, uh, of, of righteousness, and, and they didn't make it, he says. Why? Verse 32. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. What's the stumbling stone? Jesus Christ. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Verse 33. Jesus was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, they didn't get him. They stumbled over him. They didn't get what he was all about. They didn't get why he came, why he was preaching, why he did all he did, all the miracles and so forth. He tripped them up. And they, of course, especially didn't get his cross. It made no sense to them. Why go through all of that? Why not just come and be the king? I mean, John 6, after all, I mean, they were about to crown him as a king and he wouldn't let them. Philippians 2, Jesus is called the king of kings. So if he's called the king of kings, why not let us crown you there in John 6, the king of kings? Because something has to happen between John 6 and Philippians 2. What? The cross. Oh, beloved, get this. The world doesn't receive the gospel because it can't handle Christ. Talk about God all you want. Talk about the church. Talk about the mystery of the Spirit. And boy, there are a lot of churches love to talk about the Spirit. You know, Spirit this, Spirit that, everything's mystical. Crazy, you know. They're fine with that. That's okay. Talk about church history. Talk about Christian books and writers and former pastors. But as soon as you talk about Christ, that's it. You've just drawn a line in the sand. As soon as you have elevated Christ and said, He is the supreme. He is the one. He is the answer. You just made a person uncomfortable. Why? Well, you can see this by looking closely at where they went wrong with Jesus Christ in three ways. Let's look at it there in your notes. First of all, they went wrong about His person. That is, who he is. It says, for Christ is. And we stop there. Jesus was a rock of offense. We already saw that. He offended them. They couldn't stand him. Why? Because he was the very righteousness of God in bodily form. God came down and they hated his righteousness. You see, they thought Messiah would be different. They thought he was going to join their army, not the other way around. You got that? You know, you look through the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's so many different examples. I, I think of... Uh, I think of Gideon's, you know, when he was put as a judge uh, to lead the nation in, in a fight. And remember how he 
there were a bunch of people that kind of turned out to, to be in the, in the battle and only 300 of them were taken. Small amount. It's kind of like what it, what it is. I mean, these many people wanted to fight their own way and God had a different plan of how to do the battle. Jesus perfectly lived out the law, not their rules. And that bugged them. It bothered them. They hated him. I'll give you one example of many that we could look at here about this point. Turn to Mark chapter 3 to see this. Jesus goes into a synagogue here, as he often did, to preach. And just recently, Jesus said it, it, it for, you know, uh, earlier in chapter 228, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He made that statement. They heard it. They knew about that. What was he saying when he said that? The Sabbath was made to point to Christ. In other words, I've come down here from heaven to tell you all what you should believe about the Sabbath, not the other way around. You see, these Jews, I mean, these Jews have made many, many rules. Little nitpicky rules about the about how you were to act on the Sabbath. The biggest rule you remember that they made, and these were things that you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath, but the biggest rule was you don't work on it, right? Now the intent of the law was to t take a day off of your regular work, your career, your job. That was the intent of it. It was a mer it was mercy. It was the Lord saying, look. You work six days, take one day off to be refreshed. And I, I like that. It, it really is merciful because when sin came, the body kind of responded to that. Have you noticed that when you do a lot of hard work, you get sore? You do, don't you? I'm thankful that the Lord has given us a, you know, take some rest, you know, type of mentality there. The body can use some rest now and then. So he incorporated that. He's the one that did that. But they turned it around and did other stuff. They started adding rules. So you can't do this, but you can't do that. And so they saw Jesus heal on the Sabbath. Now watch this. If Jesus' job is to be a healer, and Jesus has made it clear the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is what he does. So, all right. We don't like you, nor what you do. So you can't work on the Sabbath. No healing on the Sabbath. Isn't that crazy? Set up shop on a different day. And so here comes this man on the Sabbath there and in the synagogue. And he comes with this withered hand. And what do you think Jesus is going to do? Of course he's going to heal him. And so here he comes. In uh, verse 2, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Watch this. What does it say next? So that they might accuse him. That's how they viewed Jesus. You understand that? 
This guy has got to be put away. This guy needs duct tape over the mouth. This guy needs to be put away somewhere and set aside. Somebody's got to stop him. He's got righteousness oozing out of him and it's too much and it's, 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 uh, it's condemning us. We're being made to look bad. You see what's going on? Why, what do they want to do? They want to accuse Jesus. Why? Because he's all righteous. He's perfect. He's, there's no sin. And in fact, Jesus exposes man's sin merely by his presence and his perfect obedience, doesn't he? I mean, you see him and he always does what's right with a perfect attitude. And you sort of straighten up around him, don't you? You get a little uneasy, especially if you're trying to get away with something. And they were. Oh, I love this. Look at verse 4. Jesus calls this guy to him, but he speaks to the leaders. And he says, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save her life or to kill? And what's, what's Jesus doing here? He's going right to the throat of their legalism. And he says, You know, you guys are trying to accuse me of evil, trying to find something to take me down here. To take me down with. And you miss the whole point of the law when you do that. You miss what God is like. I came to save and you're here to kill. Who's the righteous one here? See. And after Jesus heals the man, look at verse 6. Look at the reaction of the, of the leaders. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Why? Because they couldn't stand his person. They couldn't stand him because they, they didn't know who he was. And what they did know bothered them. This is why Jesus said what he said uh, to that rich young ruler that came later on in Mark 10. He had this rich young ruler that comes and the man runs up to Jesus. And remember what he did? He, he, he knelt down, it says, before him. And uh, it's a great start, right? I mean, that sounds humble, doesn't it? Kneels down before him. And then he says this, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds like a great question. But Jesus knows what the real stumbling block is to this man. He knows what offends the man. And he does it right away. He exposes this man right away. Have you seen this before? Listen to this in verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why is Jesus saying that? No one's good except God alone. Well, if you're Jehovah's Witness, it's because he's trying to tell you he's not God. See, that's not what he's saying. Why Jesus is saying that is because he's telling the man his first and greatest problem is in understanding who Jesus is. I'm going to ask you this question and it's because I want to see do you really know me? Do you really understand who I am? No one is good except God alone and you're calling me good. So why are you calling me good? See? 
What's your motive? Where's your heart? He tells this man. Is this man coming to Jesus as the Holy One, the only righteous, as sovereign God, come to earth to put on skin and give his life for sinners? No, the man was only flattering Jesus. That's all that was. Jesus says, I want you to know that I see right through you. And by the way, by saying that, he was clearly telling this man, if you don't see this with your eyes, let me make it clear with you. I am God. That's what he was saying. No one is good except God alone. So are you coming to me as the sovereign God? Or are you coming to me to get something out of me, from me? Some type of acceptance. And then you look at all the messages that Jesus gave against uh, these people and their self-righteousness. And Matthew 23, he gave ma a massive rebuke there and he spoke against their self-righteousness. In Luke 5, we hit this last time when Jesus said, uh, I come to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. And what he was doing was confronting their self-righteousness. And, and he challenged them and he confronted them. In Luke 18, he did the same thing and he offended them. And, and it was his message and his righteousness that they couldn't stand. And that leads to the second point here this morning. They were wrong about not only his person, but his provision. His provision. Or in other words, what he did. There are two key words here. Look at what it says. For Christ is the end of the law. Two key words here that you have to get right in order to understand this point. And it's the word end, and it's the word law. For Christ is the end of the law. Now what Jesus did was that he came to provide a righteousness that they couldn't get on their own. That we can't get on our own. Now you can't persuade a people that need, that they need you know, this kind of righteousness that Jesus provided unless they see what? Unless they see their own righteousness and how it lacks, right? They need to think and believe that they need saving in order to be saved. Now watch this. Paul says, uh, Christ came to put an end of the, of the law. What's that mean? End. To end the law? That's it? No more law? Is that what it's saying? Is Paul saying Jesus Christ ends the law? I mean, can you just ignore the Old Testament? Is he giving us the freedom to do that? To just kind of cut out the, you know, the put bars around it, cut it off, or get one of those, you know, those Bibles that just have the new and they don't have the old, you know, that always kind of, I don't know, it never, never sat real well with me. I mean, just to, here's the New Testament. So what about, where'd the old go? I mean, that was, Paul says that was good stuff. I mean, I mean, didn't Paul say in Romans 7:12 that the law is holy and good? Why would he say it's holy and good? And then in 10:4 he says, "Oh, but by the way, Christ put an end to it." <laughs> Why? 
What was wrong with it? Nothing. So what's he saying here? Can you cut out the first five books called the law? Well, the word end is the word telos in Greek. It's a fascinating word. It, it means a whole host of things depending upon its context. So sometimes it can mean complete. Uh, sometimes that word means mature or perfect or finished or culmination or climax or the end product. And it just depends on what the, uh, the context is. For example, it's used in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says, uh, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And many people read that kind of idea into our text. And so they, they, so they think that what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He makes finally that law complete. See. In other words, you hadn't had a person up to this point that could live out the law and really complete what it was all about. So that you could get a good picture. And here comes Christ. And so he's the picture, of the, in other words, of the law. He came to fulfill it. Now let me ask you, is that a biblical thought? Sure it is. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. So sure, that's a, that's a biblical thought. Matthew 5, 17. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, Not one letter of the law will pass away until it's all accomplished, until it's all fulfilled in Him. Boy, that sounds really good. Doesn't that sound like what He's saying here in, in Romans 10, 4? Is that what Paul's talking about? Well, there's a second way some people see this verse. Galatians 3. Some see that He's fulfilling. Some see it as He's the goal. Galatians 3, Christ is the goal of the law. The law is a tutor leading people to Christ. Now, by the way, that's true, isn't it? He is the fulfillment of the law. He's also the goal. But I don't believe that Romans 10.4 is teaching either one of those two things. And I can show you what Paul's teaching here. You say, what's it saying? Well, how about the word... It was used in John 19.30 where he uses telos there when Jesus was about to die on the cross and he said, same word, it is finished. It's fascinating if you do a study on this word. Telos, most of the time the word means termination or end or finish as it's used there with Jesus on the cross. Christ then would be said to be the termination of the law. And now we come back to where we started. Well, wait a minute here. How can we say that he's brought that thing to an end? When he says in Matthew 5, he didn't do that. Well, many people don't like that interpretation because it does actually sound like that there's no more law. And some people, there are some people that actually believe that. And they would say, see, the age of the law is all done. The old covenant is done, and the new covenant has begun, and that is what Paul is teaching us here. They would say something along the lines of this. See, there was a dispensation of law back then, and now there's not that dispensation. We're in a new one, and, and on and so forth. 
As though it almost sounds like what they're trying to say is that in the Old Testament the law saved you and now Christ saves you. I don't believe that's what he's saying either. He says, so, okay, we've got a whole lot of what he's not saying. What is he saying? Well, look at the verse. Christ is the end of the law. What's it say next? For righteousness. Then what? To all who what? Believe. In other words, the thing that's been terminated is tied to our what? Belief. So what we can say is that when we believe, something gets terminated. Something ends, see. What does? The law for righteousness does. You say, what's that? John MacArthur calls it, rightly so, the quest for righteousness. That's what ends. Doesn't that fit what Paul has said so far in Romans? One more thing there in 10.4 to everyone who believes. If Paul is saying Jesus is the fulfillment or the goal of the law, listen, it doesn't require my believing for that to be true, does it? He, he is that. Whether I believe or not, Jesus Christ is the goal of the law and he does fulfill the law. So that little phrase to all who believe connected to him being the end of the law becomes really important. And what that tells me is there's something about my believing that ends something that previously I had in my life that needed to come to an end. You getting it a little bit more? Paul is saying here, that Jesus Christ is the end of the pursuit for righteousness by the law, by works, for the one who believes in Jesus Christ, that that system is all done. That's what he's saying. In other words, as soon as belief happens, perp, that system is all done. You say, well, what good was that system? That's what Paul's trying to tell you. Not. It wasn't good. It wasn't a valid system. It needed to come to an end, didn't it? That's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 3 when he said Paul, Paul said of himself that he was trusting in his own righteousness, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in verse 6, it asked to the righteousness which is in the law, he was found blameless. There's the system, right? Quest for righteousness from the law. But what happened? The gospel came around and Paul realized that that system was what? Rubbish. You know, he also counted that system as a loss for the sake of gaining whom? Christ. Notice, not gaining another system, but gaining Christ himself. His aim was now to gain Christ. It would, you know, beloved, it would be like a person who was told to... Uh, follow the traditions of the church and to follow the sacraments and you'd be saved in the end and you worked and you lived under this uh, weight and you thought to yourself oh I gotta get to that mass because if I don't I'm not gonna get that uh, 
I'm not going to have the Eucharist deal going. I'm not going to have that sacrament thing. And it's, you know, I have to have that. So every week there's sort of this kind of hanging right over you and you've got to have it. Now, oh, you know what, I missed this other sacrament. I forgot to do the penance thing. And, oh, yeah, that's right. And I've got this other deal here. And I haven't been baptized yet, so I've got to make sure I do that deal. And I've got to get them all going and make sure I'm constantly, you know, seeing the priest to do what I need to do and confessing the sins and all that kind of stuff. That's a lot of work, isn't it? Keep that up all the time. Gets kind of tiring after a while. Gets burdensome after a while, doesn't it? You can't do it. You're a failure all the time. And I tell you, you've got... That's why you can come up with this with these crazy purgatory-type beliefs. That I mean, you've got to get people to have some type of hope because they feel cruddy. And they're guilty. And they don't know how to get rid of the guilt. Maybe if you throw some holy water on that, at least that'll help, right? That's the thinking. Maybe if you genuflect a, you know, a dozen times, that'll do something. Wear a robe. Uh, something. Keep it going. Beads. Paul says you can be free from that. You can, you can be free from that system. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You can be free from all that self-saving. That kind of system has, it ends when you believe in Christ. That's what he's saying. And then Philippians 3.9, It may be found in him, Paul says, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which, which comes from God on the basis of faith. MacArthur says it this way. In other words, when I became a believer, I turned in my own low-level self-righteousness for the true righteousness which I could never earn, but which is mine in Christ. Can you exhale doing that? I can. <sighs> yes! Finally! All that working, all that wondering, is it enough? <sighs> He accepted Christ on my behalf. So they needed that kind of provision because they didn't have it. They didn't need Jesus Christ because they believed their righteousness was okay. They believed their righteousness passed the test. They believed their righteousness was acceptable. But Paul says they needed to have an end to that. They needed freedom from that quest, from that pursuit. That pursuit was, was, was what was keeping them from being saved. Galatians 5.1 That's why Paul told them it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He says, that stuff, all that stuff there that you were being held to, that was just a yoke of you, on you. You say again, but isn't he saying, get rid of the law? No, he's saying, finally, you could be, have a right relationship to that law because it's, you're related to the law in and through Christ. The slavery of trying to get righteousness from the law, self-righteousness, self-effort, self-saving. Or how about Colossians 2.14? You know, verse 13 talks about having forgiveness of sins. And then it says this in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way, freed us from it, right? Having nailed it to the cross. 
our own self-efforts actually is hostility. It's, it's against us. We have a, a debt of hostility. Every law we don't keep adds to that debt. It's Romans 3, 20-22 that we've studied already. Now that's the word and. Notice the word law in Romans 10, 4. That, that doesn't just mean Mosaic law. It doesn't just refer to the Ten Commandments. It has to do with any law or principle that God has given in the Old Testament that they were required to fulfill. So that you can include in there even all the temple sacrifices and festivals and all of that stuff. And so he says, Christ puts an end to all of that in terms of trying to gain righteousness through that. Again, that never was the intent. But that's what they made it into. And he's saying, Christ is the answer to all of that. So in a sense, fulfillment, goal, all of that is rolled into really this statement when he says, Christ is the end of the law. Great statement in Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Get the picture here. You have priests in the Old Testament, and they're making offerings all the time, all the time, all the time, 24-7. You've got to make sure, just in case it's 3 in the morning, you feel guilty, and you've got to go take care of the deal. And so you go to the temple, and ah, there's a priest there. I've got to talk to you. All right, here's what I did. Little, here's a bull, let's sacrifice that, that thing there and can't pay for a bull, alright, how about a dove, whatever I mean, let's just, you know, get it done so that we can get the blood out there oh, I feel much better and then you leave and you sit and you've well, you got to come back again you got to take care of this whole deal again, see how tiresome and he says, uh, you don't have to do that anymore no one can make a, not, not, not one of those can make a person perfect, he says. In verse 3, all those sacrifices just reminded us that we were sinners year by year. Verse 4, he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you see the exhaustion? I do. You see what a burden that would be? Why did God tell them that you say to do that? Because it was a picture of the coming Christ. It was helping them to understand you place faith in God's provision to forgive your sins. And that blood acts as a picture of what is to come. When Jesus came, he put an end to all the offerings, all the sacrifices. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One, that's all you need is just one. Just that one. And it ended everything else. Verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because Christ is our offering. That's what he's saying. And that leads to the last one. They were wrong about his purpose. They were wrong about why Jesus did it. Why he came to provide salvation this way. Notice those two words, for righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. They were clueless about Christ. They didn't get who he was. They didn't get what he did. 
Why suffer on a cross, they thought to themselves. Remember how much, too, the disciples uh, struggled each time Jesus would say this? For the Son of Man must suffer and die at the hands of the leaders. And they struggled with that. Remember that? I mean, the cross didn't fit with the quest for self-righteousness. just didn't fit. What am I going to do with the cross now? Because obviously, that's where, it end, that's where Jesus, that's where his quest ended. That didn't look successful to them. You know what the Pharisees and scribes thought Jesus was doing by dying on the cross? Listen. They thought he was trying to one-up them. Say, really? Yeah, they held on to the statement that Jesus made in John 2, the very beginning of his ministry. And if you look at Matthew 27, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry there, in John chapter 2, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about his body. Now they finally did get that that's what he meant. You look there at Matthew 27, talking about the death of Jesus, and they went to put him in the burial. It says this, that a group came to the Romans and they said, we would like you to set up a guard deal over there. Protect that tomb. Why? Here's, I'm going to quote verse 63, Matthew 27, 63. Because Jesus said, after three days, I am to rise again. What's their view of it all? We don't want you, we don't want that to happen. Don't let him rise. Are you kidding me? <laughs> How are you going to stop that? If he's risen from the dead, is there any power that's going to stop him from moving that tombstone out of the way? And these guys just they just their own that's what self-righteousness does. It blinds you. Keeps you from seeing the truth. Why did Jesus come to bring an end to that system? Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He did it, he did it to be our righteousness. Isaiah 45, 24 says, Only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Or how about Jeremiah 23, 6? The Lord, our righteousness. When a person sees Jesus Christ and, and he sees him as the gift of righteousness... And all that system of working, of efforts, of self-saving, of human achievements for salvation, all of that ends because they understand that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 was getting at. And that's why in verse 20 he says, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says, We beg you, have a relationship with God. Be his friend. How, Paul? Verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ we become righteous. That's why he died. And so he's saying, look, be reconciled to him. Believe that he came to be your righteousness and his life actually was lived to be your righteousness. His death actually provides you with that righteousness. Believe that and you will receive that. Israel was blind to see why Jesus came. She didn't understand. And you know, beloved, so many don't today either, do they? And so they, they think that Jesus came to be their buddy. You know? 
Me and Jesus have a special relationship, they'll tell you. Others think that he came to be a great example, you know, a champion or a hero. And still others think that Jesus came to live a life for us to follow and imitate. And we just, you know, we just need to do our best. There it is. Go after it. Just kind of, that's what, they think that's what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. Don't forget, Jesus said, take up the cross, then follow me. If you understand the cross and how central it is, there's my cross, and now your following is to be an imitation of that kind of cross-type work. In other words, it sets the whole thing. He came for one reason. To glorify the Father by becoming our righteousness so we could be saved. How? He lived a perfect life, obeying the law perfectly, and then was punished in our place so that righteousness could be provided for us and sin could be placed on Him. It is the great and marvelous divine exchange and you and I don't understand it but it should bring us to a place of worship and love and adoration let me conclude here I must ask has Christ put an end to your self-saving pursuit has he are you done living for you? Has that ended? Or do you feel like, oh, I still got one more thing. I, I still got a little, I want to hang on to this little deal over here. But I like this too much. Have you tasted the freedom from self-righteousness? You say, what can I do? First, confess that there hasn't been an end to your request. Be honest. Confess that. Confess that you are still pursuing self and still living for you. Secondly, believe in the gospel. Believe that God sent Jesus Christ alone to set you free from your sins and to give you His righteousness that condemned you without. And third, make Christ the issue, okay? Don't make going to church the issue. Don't uh, make uh, reading your Bible even the issue. Don't make having right friends or relationships the issue. The issue is Christ. Christ alone. He came to be Lord of your life. He came to take your sin. He came to be your righteousness. To offer you His very own righteousness so that you could be saved. I'm reminded of a couple of songs. One written by Nicholas Ludwig van, von Zinzendorf. Jesus, thy robe and righteousness. My beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day for who ought to my charge shall I shall lay 
fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Lord, I believe thy precious blood, which at the, the mercy seat of God forever doth for sinners plead for me, e'en for my soul was shed. Lord, I believe where sinners more than sands upon the ocean shore, thou hast for all a ransom paid, for a full, for all a full atonement made. Amen. And Augustus Tope lady who said, a debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing, I come with your righteousness on. My humble offering to bring. What offering? Christ. The judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for Christ. and He is everything to us and we need him and we are eternally indebted to him. We pray, give us a greater understanding of this righteousness we have for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe, everyone who believes. I pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, worship you and thank you father for this great provision for us we love you and praise you in jesus name amen